Lovely. Um, so just a little bit about myself. Um, I think that I was one of the few people who was there at the very beginning at the uh, start of Christian Concern. wasn't a founder, but I was there at the table. I was relatively young at the time, and I thought, what's all this about? And ever since then, I've been involved on a part-time basis and now on a full-time uh, basis in helping uh, Christian Legal Center, helping Christians around the country um, when they get into trouble. First, it started out representing street preachers, and um, when they get arrested, going down the police station or going to trial, and by God's grace, as um, Tim said, it's been a 100% trial record so far, but also, um, latterly, helping other people who are in difficult employment situations, uh, maybe sometimes taking the police to court for when they've done things which are wrong. And at the same time, um, up until uh, quite recently, also representing people uh, in a criminal defense context. And increasingly, um, a lot of the people who I was representing were sex offenders, people who were in trouble for sex offenses. And over time, you begin to see similar patterns and you realize that there is a real ministry opportunity there for anybody who's involved in the criminal justice system, but in fact, anybody who was a person, because in fact, we all um, really have a part to play in this uh, uh, difficulty in this issue. And I have personally found that there is such an opening there for the gospel, um, because really these people, not just the sex offenders, but people who could be sex offenders, which is, as we've heard, pretty much almost most men and, and many women are going to be open to hearing about salvation. They're going to be opening, open to hearing about what it is. How is it? I remember once a, a mother said to me, her, her son was up for um, grooming online. He had probably the largest library that the police had ever found of um, contacting young boys online. And she said, you know, what hope is there? What can I do for my son? How is it that he can get free of these problems? And, you know, what do you say in that situation? Do you run? And, or do you actually speak the truth to those people? And I think that that is an opening that we have. Um, and historically... Historically, the church has always spoken up against idolatry. And this is really the main idol of our age. Acts chapter 19, uh, it's about Ephesus. And when Paul went to Ephesus, thanks. when Paul went to Ephesus, he confronted the idols of the time. Um, and we read there, um, that a lot of people were unhappy about what he did. He called them together, verse 25, along with the workers in related trades and said, you know, my friends, that we receive a good income from this business. And you see and hear how this fellow Paul is convinced and led astray large numbers of people here in Ephesus. He was taking down the main idol. And if anybody's ever been to Ephesus um, on holiday, um, it's ruins now. But that's just, um, that's me. As I understand, that's a reconstruction of um, the, the temple of Diana. And the whole city was in uproar. And in fact, what it goes on to say is most of the people did not know even why they were there. And so many people, and I think that that in some ways describes 
so many of the clients that I've represented over the years, they've ended up in a situation where they said to me, how did I end up here? How did I end up you know, being arrested? How did I end up committing these offenses? And they simply just do not know. And we have to challenge the idols of our day. We have to uh, challenge the suppliers, the drug dealers of our day. They will react badly. We have to minister to the drug users, not give up. And when the idol has been deposed, we, as the church, are the only organization that really has any hope for those people. Because the thing is this, is that very often, um, what the, the courts have to offer and what the secular psychologists have to offer does help, but it doesn't entirely help. In some ways, it's a bit like, for example, I often say it's like having a garden. And in part of that garden, you have Japanese knotweed in the corner. And the thing is this, is that if you leave that Japanese knotweed there, what's going to happen? It's going to take over the whole entire garden. So what do you have to do? Most people just say, well, we'll just keep that under control. But the reality is, it takes over the whole garden. So you, not only do you have to cut off the head of the weed, which is what the psychologists, the secular psychologists, can do to a degree, but you, in fact, you have to do further. You have to take out the roots of the very problem. And for many years, the church has been the one which has confronted the idols of this country. Now, one, for many years, it was alcohol. Now, I'm not going to suggest that Christian concerns position is, is that everybody should be teetotal, but it was right for many years that alcoholism was the major vice of this country. And the church eventually rose to the challenge. In fact, it's been Tudor times when the problem, in fact, first started. Various acts of parliament were passed, but it was very often the church on the ground that was prepared to go out and to confront the problem. The Methodist, John Wesley, he wasn't, in fact, it didn't start off in that manner, um, but later on in life, he abstained from wife, spoke about the dangers of alcohol abuse, and by the 19th century, the Methodists were closely associated with abstinence. Went on to the temperance movement in the United Kingdom. The Methodists, the Quakers, the Salvation Army, all lobbied Parliament uh, to restrict alcohol sales. The Calvinistic Methodists from, the, uh, from Wales, she closed all the uh, public houses. So uh, one particular lady, uh, Lady uh, Clenova, closed all the public houses on her estate. The Church of England's Temperance Society, uh, which had its roots in the Anglo-Catholic uh, tradition in 1862. The League of the Cross, a Catholic uh, total abstinence organization in 1876. And so they went out and they met the people on the street. The Salvation Army was started in that way, 1865. If you remember, William and Catherine Booth, um, originally, in fact, Methodists, <coughs> And their doctrine was soap, soup, and salvation. And the first Christians, or members of the uh, Salvation Army, were alcoholics, also morphine addicts and prostitutes, and the other undesirables who were not being ministered to by the mainstream church. But they faced opposition, tremendous opposition. Um, in fact, there was a, a counter-army which was formed called the Skeleton Army, and a number of them died in the course of what they did. 
Now, in fact, believe it or not, alcohol is less of a problem than it used to be, believe it or not. And I'm not saying for one second that we should stop helping the alcoholics or anything like that. But it is true that even in the course of my career, I saw less and less crime being committed as a result of alcohol, whereas on the other hand, sex offences kept on going up. UK consumption of alcohol has dropped, believe it or not, from 2.6 litres of alcohol per year in 1990 to 11.4 litres in 2011, decline of nearly 10%. Young people are now turning away from it. Many more young people are teetotal. Study involving 10,000 young people in the United Kingdom found that the proportion of 16 to 20-year-olds who say that they've never had a drink rose from 18% in 2005 to 29% in 2015. So where are these young people going? Because they're drinking less and less alcohol, but are the emotional problems still there? The truth is they are, but they've just moved in a different direction. I remember speaking to a young man not that long ago was facing a serious allegation, the most serious sexual allegation that there is, and just talking to him generally about his sex life. And this is a guy, nice guy, white guy, uh, educated, and I said, so how many sexual relationships have you had? And he said, well, about 15. And I said, well, and how many girlfriends have you had? Oh, just the one. So every other relationship that he'd had, he'd met through Tinder or some other app like that, and so every time he had an emotional need, an emotional difficulty, that's what he would do. First it was pornography, then it was Tinder. And, and I read these messages between him and this young lady, and it was just, it was industrial. That's the way I'd describe it. It's just like, you know, what time are we going to meet up and, you know, and so on. And it was just like, it was like a business meeting. And I just thought, you know, where has the romance gone? But the reality is, is that alcohol has diminished, which is good, or alcohol-related violence, a 25% decline in alcohol-related violence. But at the same time, now we see this. Sex offending is going up. So really, in some ways, where it's like squeezing a balloon. The air is not where it used to be, but it's moved to a different place. And so... How do we feel about this? The reality is that that's how many people feel about this new issue. So long as you can keep it undercover, away from people, then really, what is the problem? If nobody else sees what I am doing, then what is the issue? And that is how so many of the people who get addicted to pornography um, feel. 2014, in fact, this was referred to by somebody else, 79% of 18 to 30-year-old Christian men view porn monthly. 37% of Christian men view porn several times a week. That is just really a shocking statistic, isn't it? And the reality is, is that if we put our hands up in the room, who has had an issue with it? We have to be prepared to put our hands up. You know, it says in the book of Revelation that uh, the Spirit of Jesus is, is prophecy. So in other words, I'm going to suggest this, is that when, sorry, the testimony of Jesus is the Spirit of prophecy, 
when we tell our testimony, it is a prophetic thing. It is saying to somebody else, I have conquered through the blood of Jesus Christ. You can conquer too. And this is eventually where so many cases end up. This is, in the end, this is what I did. More of anything else, uh, I never did one of these cases. When I first started out, I didn't do one of these. I didn't even know what this was. Um, child abuse images, child pornography. One judge, in fact, said, uh, we went into court, and the prosecutor said, shall I refer your honor to the page number? She said, there's no need to give me the page number because my book always falls open onto that page these days because there are so many of these cases. And, you know, we've got to ask ourselves the question, how is it? How is it that somebody could derive enjoyment or do this at all? A child abuse image. Um, and that's not the only offense. These offenses here are increasingly the most, some of the most common um, offenses that are being dealt with by the criminal courts. Extreme pornographic images, that means sadomasochistic images, bestiality, uh, voyeurism, filming women in private, that's becoming a lot more common, um, small little camera, film your sister-in-law, um, the person that you're living with in a, in a rental property, outraging public decency, um, upskirting, masturbating public, exposure, meeting a child following sexual grooming. Very often police officers will go online and they'll pretend to be children. So these are increasingly the offences that the courts are dealing with. So what can the church do? Well, back to basics here. Only the cross is really man's, is, is God's solution for man's problem. There's a quote, the cross made no compromise, mortified um, nothing, spared nothing. It slew all of the man completely and for good. It did not try to keep him on good terms with its victim. It struck cruel and hard. And when it had finished its work, the man was no more. I learned that when we are all in the process of becoming an experience, we, sorry, who we are in, um, are in Christ by position. In other words, the position that we are has to start with the cross. We have to sacrifice all the old man in order that we appropriate Christ in all of our lives and not keep that little bit of the garden for sin. Okay, practically, what can the church do? First of all, don't have preconceived ideas as to who somebody is who's a sex offender, maybe somebody who is a porn addict. James chapter 2, my brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, must not show favoritism. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes and a poor man in filthy old clothes and comes in. There is that natural repulsion, isn't there, uh, for somebody in that situation. You think, goodness me. I remember that experience myself the, when I was a child and I met somebody who had gone to prison for the first time and I thought it was a shock. You think, who on earth will go to prison? Who on earth is that bad and evil? And we think sometimes this. If you Google, what does a sex offender look like? 
This is the image that you'll, you'll get. Now, these people really are sex offenders, okay? And we had that idea, don't we? I remember being in court once, and there was a, a guy in his 60s. He went into the dock. He was overweight. He had a big beard. And all the lawyers were saying, yeah, it's sex, isn't it? And in fact, it wasn't. It was fraud. But we all have this belief as to what these people look like. But who, what can they actually look like? Well, here are two sex offenders. Do these ladies look like sex offenders? These are registered sex offenders, believe it or not. Um, Ashley, she was assistant uh, cheer coach in America, 24-year-old blonde, uh, began a relationship with an underage male student. Uh, Megan, a gym teacher, basketball coach, Catholic high school, uh, just turned 25, charged with 30 counts of statutory rape. The majority are not women, in fact, sometimes they are, but the majority of people who are going to have sex offenders and also people who are porn addicts, my experience is that they're usually white, but not always, middle class, but not always, educated, usually to a tertiary level, computer literate, never been in trouble with the police before, been in a relationship before, and they're usually a nice person. That is the average person. And so it isn't who you would think it is. But the commonality, I'm going to suggest, in my experience, is that there's, when you speak to them, there's always that issue, very often, in fact, not often, always related to childhood, of rejection, usually by a parent, sometimes usually the father, sometimes the mother as well. Second thing, recognize how little we know. Encourage people to get the right help and don't be judgmental. That's what the Bible says, I'm going to suggest. Because the fact is this, is that unless you've been there yourself, you won't really understand what's involved. And I think, um, you know, would we go up to an... If somebody came into church and said, oh, by the way, I'm struggling with alcoholism, would you say to them... I've got a really good idea for you, just don't buy any more alcohol. Would you say that to them? No, you wouldn't. But I have heard things like that said in church in relation to porn addiction. Somebody at a church that I used to go to, one of the pastors said, if you've got a porn addiction, buy a blocker. There we are. That's it. The problem's gone. The reality is, is that that is as ludicrous as to say, don't buy alcohol to an alcoholic. You are not dealing with the problem. One guy who I'm trying to help and disciple and mentor at the moment, um, he became a Christian a number of years ago. He was involved in a cult. He started going to church. When he came into church, he stopped smoking just like that. And he thought, fantastic, this church thing is really good. But the depression and the porn addiction continued. And, um, you know, and I said this to him, and he said, look, you know, there have been times, I've had plenty of blockers in my time, but, you know, when I feel so down, what I do is I go out and I buy a new device. And that's what I do. So the reality is, is that we have to get to the heart of the problem. Because we are wired for intimacy. 26 references in the New Testament to Pornea. Um, but our bodies are not made for it. So the, there's an understanding, isn't there, that we are drawn to this, 
or we must reject it. So what is the alternative that we are offering to those in the midst of this lifestyle? The psychologists often understand it. This is, in fact, from a secular psychologist, and this is the process which secular psychology recognizes, and I think there's a lot of truth in it. Early life experience, rejection, say, by a father. You feel bad about yourself. You withdraw. You become angry, fantasy, and act out. You feel bad about it. You start living in fear. You feel bad about yourself, and you go back. The only way to address the issue I'm going to suggest is this. Address the early life experience and replace it with something else. Thankfulness is one of those things, but I'm going to suggest more than anything, it's forgiveness. The alternative to forgiveness is what? Pride. The world recognizes that the problem is self-esteem. They say, children have low self-esteem. We've got to fix that. So what do we do? We make them feel proud. Now, is it any surprise that pride is called pride? Um, because the commonality amongst those people, if you spend any time in that community, is the hurt, the rejection that all of those people will have experienced. And they're looking for answers. But very often, they are looking for the answers in the wrong place. So we need to address the root causes. <clears throat> where is our primary identity? Even as Christians, where is our primary identity? This is a quote from Dr. Charles Solomon, and I highly recommend his book. The problem is that most people are living out of the wrong identity the one shaped by being conformed to this world rather than by being transformed by the renewing of their minds, the identity we have been assigned by others or the one that we have built for ourselves. Whereas, in fact, the way of the cross is through death and resurrection of Christ. So this is a diagram that sometimes I show to clients. Where is your primary identity? And I'm going to suggest that very often those who are trapped in the middle of an addiction, are living in the bottom third, where it says body. So their psychological state is entirely determined by how their body feels at any particular point in time. The alcoholic who is in the midst of alcoholism, he feels good when he's drunk, and when he's not drunk, he feels bad. So his body is his master in that situation. Most people live, I'm going to suggest, in the um, two-thirds, not the spirit, but the but the soul and the body, where their identity is determined by in part what they look like, part what the world says, and in part what other people think about them. Attractive person, people pay them compliments, they look good, feel good, they feel good. But when their body deteriorates, when their friends leave them, what happens? What happens in, with the midlife crisis? But where we should live, I'm going to suggest, is this, is our primary identity should be from God. So as Christians, we need to live in all three parts. And rather than the, the body being our master, it is God who is our master and our primary identity. And when God and who we are in God becomes our primary identity, then at that point, it doesn't matter what other people think. 
does it? If a drunk calls out to Prince Harry who's walking down the road, you're not Prince Harry, what does he care? He knows what his identity is. He knows who he is because he knows his history and his lineage and so on. And if people call out to us and say, reject us, and that taps into what has happened to us as a child, if our primary identity is as a child of God, we will be unaffected. There's another quote from Steve Gallagher, who wrote a book, uh, which I'll recommend later. A true overcomer must part with certain relationships, places, and things that were uh, intimately associated with his sinful lifestyle. This is extremely difficult and often traumatic to the sex addict who, for many years, has looked to his sin for comfort, pleasure, and as, a, as an escape from the real world. That is the primary identity of somebody who is in the midst of an addiction. And it reminds me, there was a, a chap who I'd invited who was a client, and he started coming to church on an occasional basis. And I said to him, I said, you know, you've got to get into rehab. You've got to get into rehab. And eventually he agreed to go up to rehab one day. And he turned up late, and the pastor of our church agreed to drive him there, and he drove there. And before he went in, he just had to have one last drink. And then he went in, and he was drunk, and he left after a day. And I thought, all of that effort for nothing. But why? Because he was not prepared to forsake the idol that gave him so much comfort and pain relief from his childhood. He wasn't ready. Many are, but many aren't. If our true identity is in Christ, we may think too much of ourselves or too little. In either case, it is an identity built on people, performance or possessions, power, our past. Such an identity is based on doing for ourselves, others and God in our own strength. In other words, we are doing in order to be. The identity delineated in the scriptures has nothing to do with the way we see ourselves in relation to others or what other, sorry, our behavior is or has been. It is an identity based on being in Christ. As we identify ourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ, we begin to live out our new and true identity in him. We have to be so unafraid, really, I'm going to suggest, and this is true of sex addicts and maybe all, and all of us, of what the world thinks of us. Wherever we are, it must matter nothing that people um, align us with Christ. And in that way, we lose the fear. And I'm going to suggest as well, one of the other problems with the church is this, is that we do not engage in spiritual warfare. The people who come against us, the enemies, those in the other camp, Sometimes they're so full of hatred, sometimes they're nasty, but why? We have to be forgiving, we have to love them. And one of the principal ways I'm going to suggest is this, is that remember that ultimately, that it's not them, don't take it personally. It's not them in particular, because in fact, the fight is what is behind them. The things which are unseen. <coughs> and until we, as a church, have been broken. We're, we're like a stallion, aren't we? An unbroken, uh, wild stallion. Maybe beautiful to look at, but until we are broken and are prepared to engage in this battle in the way in which God wishes us to engage, then we will not progress. For myself, 
And I know for so many people that I've spoken to over the years, one of the main things is that we've given a foothold to the enemy. Um, on D-Day, the Allied forces landed on the beaches of Normandy. It's critical to establish a beachhead, a foothold on the beach that would allow them a staging area to bring more men and equipment for the battle. Without that, the war would have been lost. And what is, or what are the footholds that maybe those people, and even us, have given the enemy in our lives? I was listening to Premier Christian Radio, and they said apparently the issue that pastors struggle with more, as in people in the congregation, and they come to pastors and vicars and so on, the biggest issue out of any issue is unforgiveness. The inability to forgive. And I think that if it goes all the way back to the people who have hurt you in childhood, then there's only a limited amount of work that God can do. <clears throat> so, and I think there is a danger, isn't there? The devil, there's another quote from Steve Gallagher, the, the devil can dangle a carrot right in front of your face, but there is something inside you that actually wants that carrot. You aren't lustful because some demon comes on you. You are lustful because you have a desire for what isn't right. Sexual addiction isn't going to be overcome by sitting back and waiting for God to throw a thunderbolt. The determined man must initiate the fight themselves. So there is a tendency, isn't there, to either concentrate as, uh, on either the world, and it's all the world's problem, on the devil, and some Christians say, the devil made me do it, uh, or the flesh, and say, it's all about mortification of the flesh, and I just need to fast more, and so on. The truth of the matter is, is that we have to attack the enemy, all three enemies, at the same time. The devil, through spiritual warfare, the flesh, by how we live a disciplined life, and the world, in terms of what we do with ourselves. The problem that so many of us maybe see is this, is that sometimes when we are on the brink of success, so many of us give up. Because it is a hard battle, and battles do hurt. Warfare does hurt. It is warfare. Let's not mess around here. This is a war, and people die in wars. People get hurt in wars. This is a spiritual warfare. People are nasty. People lie. The enemy lies. The enemy doesn't play fair. They have to play within certain rules. It's like the Geneva Convention. They have to play within certain rules. He does, but he doesn't play fair. And this isn't, we've already said this, pornography isn't just about men. It also involves women, not just in terms of the increasing numbers of women who look at pornography, but how do women see themselves? 80% of women feel bad about themselves when they look in a mirror. Because the reality is, is that if you're perpetually looking at pornographic images, then it leads to dissatisfaction. Um, So how do we enter? How does the addict enter into this abundant life? Well, I'm going to suggest fear. Like the chap that uh, was taken to the brink of the rehab clinic, we're afraid of losing our old identity in exchange for the new. And we end up, like the Israelites, wandering in the wilderness, where we more or less coexist with Satan. He doesn't bother with us too much because we're hardly worth his notice. 
Satan doesn't actually mind too much many Christians because they don't really bother him, because they're not really doing anything. But are we those Christians, and if we've come out of addiction, are we those who are pushing into the enemy's territory? Because that's when he's going to be concerned. Um, now, practically, what can the church do? One thing that we can do is make the church a visual oasis. Um, 1 Corinthians 6 verse 9, Be careful, however, that the exercise of your rights does not become a stumbling block to the weak. It isn't just about online porn, as we've been hearing. Uh, but in fact, men especially are entering into a new age, which probably we've not seen since about maybe Roman times in the Western world. Every time you go out into the world, men and women are going to see uh, the skimpy attire that the young girls very often will wear. Fashion designers um, compete with each other to make the sexiest lines of clothing for teens. Let me ask a question. Do you think that you would pass the prison test? And by that, by that I mean this. When you go into prison, if you are a man or a woman, you can't wear certain things. And if you do, then you can't go in. This is a secular establishment, but they've learned that if you dress in a certain way, then you will be excluded. And I've been there on the way into prison, and there's been, there was a lady in front of me uh, on more than one occasion who was told to turn back. They understand what men are like um, in that kind of situation. Um, now, would we pass as Christians? Um, once again, a quote from Steve Gallagher. In the first century, women wore long, loose-fitting robes. Christian men out in the public didn't have to deal with what men regularly face today. There were no televisions, magazines, or internet either. Nevertheless, as we discover later, there are concrete things that men can do to minimize the power of the enemy as to allure him into sin. We can do that in our own homes, but not in public. So this is, in fact, this is what the pr our prisons say. Now, some of these things I actually had to look up. I didn't actually know what they were. But um, now, apart from certain obvious things like uh, inmate clothing, we don't want to make this into salvation by um, works at all. But this is what prisons suggest are not appropriate if you go into a prison. In church, if we knew our church there was a significant number of people who were alcoholics, would we serve alcohol in church? Probably not, because it's not wrong to drink alcohol as Christians, but it's not a good idea if 75% of your congregation struggles with alcohol. Likewise, if we know that 75% of our congregation struggles with pornography, this is what prisons suggest is not a good idea. Just a suggestion. You know, and sometimes out of the mouth of babes and sucklings, I remember once we were on holiday in France, and our young daughter went up to this lady um, who we were um, in the same villa with, and um, we were sat by the pool, and she said to this lady, she said, why are you wearing your knickers in public? <laughs> and um, the lady went, well, I'm not really. It's just kind of, you know. But she had a point, didn't she? So... 
something to think about. This is what um, an article which I found on the Daily Mail. Uh, a couple in America who have a ministry, you know, they are just thinking, you know, it's a, it's a word which don't often hear these days, modesty. You know, what are we teaching our kids? And the thing is this, is that it is hard. You know, we have, like I said, we have a young daughter, and she was taken out by one of my wife's friends to buy some stuff. And when she came back, she said, well, I'm not too sure about these jeans. You know, she's only eight years old. And it is difficult, you know, to look nice, to look fashionable to a degree, but, but to be modest at the same time. <clears throat> what can the church do? I'm going to suggest this, is to offer the appropriate help. Church does actually work. Okay, it does actually work. Jesus does actually work. This is one of the good statistics that I found. 26% regular church attendees are 26% less likely to look at pornography. Okay? There are things that we can do. And people actually want to go to church. Do you know that? People do actually. I remember there was a chap, a client who I'd, who I'd represented for many years, and he came up to me in the street one day and he said, Michael, why have you never invited me to church? I'm sorry, that was a Yorkshire accent. But, <laughs> and he said, I said, well, David, you're welcome to come any time. He was half drunk at the time. And David has started to come, but he continued to offend. And, you know, I said to him once, I said, David, listen, do you mind if I pray with you? Why is it that you keep on drinking? For him, it was drink. And um, he said, I don't know. And I just had the inkling from the Holy Spirit that, that there were issues there in relation to his father. His father had gone to, been a prisoner of war uh, in, uh, in a Japanese camp, came back, he was a changed man, and David started drinking at the age of 20. I said, David, I think we need to pray that you can forgive your father, because when I hear those phone calls that you make to the police, and you start swearing and that's shouting at them, I hear the anger. But where is the anger? Is it towards the police and the ambulance service, or is it to someone else? I said, okay, we'll do that. I don't want you to pray for the police. I want you to pray for the ambulance service. I said, okay. David hasn't drunk in a year. And he's been baptized. And he's going on with God. You know? Um, and there are, you know, over the years, I think probably about maybe 20, 25 people, clients that I've invited to church. No clients for that reason have ever made a complaint about me. Uh, you take the risk and God honors it. And some have stayed. Many have stayed. Um, these uh, are some of the resources which are out there that I would personally recommend. There are many others. These ones, personally read them, found them very helpful. Um, they all have a slightly different approach, but many similar themes. <laughs> I would personally recommend reading all of them you know, even if you don't have any addiction issues yourself. Discipling people. We need to disciple people. And what does that actually really mean? James uh, 5 verse 16, Therefore confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. The chap who I was telling you about earlier, uh, the one who continued to struggle uh, with uh, pornography, I'm in contact with him on a daily basis, seeing how he is doing. And I said to him, I said, have you actually spoken to your pastor about these issues? He said, oh, no, not done that. I said, okay, 
why not? And he said, well, I tried to speak to him about something else, and it just, you know, didn't work out. Okay. And I said, but why are you speaking? I said, who are you speaking to about it? He said, well, just you, really. I said, right. And I said, but why? Why would you really want to speak to me about it? And he said, well, because you asked me, and I felt either I lie or tell you the truth. If you don't ask, you don't get. Um, and you just have to be blunt, you know. Are you struggling with anything at the moment? And you've got a 75% chance that if it's a man, they may have that week struggled with that issue. And you've got to keep on asking the question. <clears throat> We've got to encourage people to maybe engage in a detox. You know, the enemy is clever the way in which he seeks to infiltrate every single Christian home. You know, I remember coming under conviction when I was probably in, in my mid-twenties. We ended up watching a film, my wife and I, called Monster's Ball. It had these fantastic reviews, five stars. You know, it was about, you know, law and order in the United States. And I thought, oh, it looks really good. And in the middle, there's a porn scene. And it, this film got oodles of Oscars and so on. And what do you do in that situation? I remember being at university, and we walked out. We came under the conviction of the Holy Spirit, we walked out. But at university, I remember watching a film called American Pie. There's, there's a porn scene in the middle. I remember also going with loads of people from Christian Union to watch Titanic. Many people may have seen that there. And once again, there's a topless woman in the middle of it. What do we do in this situation? I was just asked. But the reality is, is that the enemy... If you said in Christian Union, hey, everyone, let's go and watch a porno, what would everybody say? No, thanks. How about we watch this really nice film, which is a bit of a chick flick. There's a bit of porn in the middle, but don't worry about that. Just close your eyes at that point. I say, yeah, okay, let's do that. And that's what people did. You know, there are some great websites out there, christianreview.net, which reviews every single film that comes out. And you can see, is there nudity? Is there violence? Is there blasphemy? And just say... It's not right. You know, myself as a child, I know there are things that I saw on TV that I wish that I hadn't seen. Films in the 1980s with nudity and so on. Um, and, you know, the great thing about today, there's so many bad things about today, is some of the Christian channels on, on YouTube. Has anybody heard of Do Perfect here? Nobody's heard of Do Perfect. They are um, one person. Okay, my children watch almost nothing apart from Do Perfect, okay? They are all Christians. Every single one of them are Christians. And they go out and they throw um, basketballs into basketball hoops on the other side of the room and, and do all these kind of things that really appeal to 9, 10, 11, 12-year-old kids. No swearing, no blasphemy, no nudity. Um, has anybody heard of Absolutely Ridiculous? No? An Australian group, all Christians again. It's another YouTube channel. Um, and there are actually loads of these channels which are out there. And these guys are getting out there. And in fact, Do Perfect have had literally millions of views of their videos. And I think they're one of the, within the top 10 most popular YouTube channels. You don't have to, we personally don't have a terrestrial TV. And so when occasionally there are recommendations for other channels and they, they click on those, which may not be Christian, and then there is nudity, our, our second oldest will instinctively, he puts his hand over or he flips over to another channel or he turns it off. And I never asked him, I never asked him to do that because he is so not used to seeing 
the kind of average stuff that is on TV. You know, it is instinctive to children. It really is, and there are some great resources out there. Ask yourself the question, would you see Game of Thrones? Should Christians see Game of Thrones? This was the question that John Piper was asked. And, you know, this is something which regularly has nudity, which has incest on it, which has rape, and it's one of the most popular uh, cable shows which are out there. And I thought that this was a good quote. The closer I get to death and meeting Jesus personally face to face and giving an account of my life for the careless words that I've spoken, the more I'm sure of my resolve never intentionally to look at a television show or movie or a website or a magazine where I know I will see photos or films of nudity. Never. That is my resolve. And the closer I get to death, the better I feel about that, the more committed I become. You know, Harvard University conducted a project which included a comprehensive study on television's role in the sexual education of children. And their study revealed 70% of all allusions to intercourse on television involve unmarried couples or prostitutes. How many um, TV shows or movies depict a happily married couple? Can you think of any heroes in popular culture where that is depicted? The typical one is James Bond, isn't it? You know, somebody who is a bit of a gigolo, somebody to be aspired to. It's, you'd have to think a long time before you can think of what a positive role model. And I think probably, off the top of my head, I can think of The Simpsons. That is the only, and even that isn't particularly positive, because as we know, Homer is a bumbling buffoon and, and the children are really the ones who are in charge. Think about if you're dealing with these guys, and even ourselves, what are the triggers that we have? Um, you shall not commit adultery, but anyone who looks on a woman to lust for her has committed adultery with her in his heart. The excitement of life under Christ's control makes each day a new adventure. When we are at rest, we trust in him. Who is our life to cause all things work together for the good of those who love him? It is exciting defeating the enemy every day in your life. It is an exciting thing. When those previous temptations come upon you and you can say no. And I would encourage everyone to have a think about this. What are the triggers in their life? Music, television, thoughts, fantasy, even music. You know, in Christian rehabs, you are not allowed to play non-Christian music. Um, there are very few rules that you have to abide by, but those are, that is one of the rules. Why? Because there is a connection there, isn't there? When you hear certain things, when you go to certain places, it is a trigger, is it not? And perform a spiritual detox on your house. Encourage those guys. Magazines, catalogues, newspapers. Um, and we have to be ruthless, don't we? Everything in our home and in our life that the devil might use in a time of weakness. And it may involve sacrificial decisions as to what we do and what we experience. Can I recommend this? This is Covenant Eyes. This is the number one app on the internet for quitting pornography. You can actually still look at pornography, but there will be an email which goes to your accountability partner. So in some ways, it's better because 
there's always that temptation, isn't there? If you've got a blocker, you think, I wonder whether it will block this or not. This one won't block anything, but it will send a message to your accountability partner. I would suggest, just from my own experience, what are some of the things that we can do as a church? And the keys to discipleship are this. Learn about the problem. And then speak directly to those people. How are they actually getting on with God? How are their quiet times going? How are they praying? What are their triggers? Are they staying away from them? Have they masturbated since we last spoke? You know, that is, can I just say, masturbation is not a word that you often hear. I know that we've heard it a lot over the last couple of days. But it is, I don't think I've ever heard that word used in church, ever. We often talk about porn, but we don't talk about that. And even, I think I did a Google search for Christian views on it. I wasn't really able to find anything definitive there. I think only one website, John Piper's website, where he spoke about it, and other websites which present two sides of the story and so on. Can I just say, maybe it's not everybody's view, but really, it is wrong, and we should aim for abstinence. Um, And I think that sometimes, unless we actually say it, then the enemy will get in and say something different. We have to actually say it even to our children, because there are different views out there. Have they looked at porn regularly? What are the things that lead them to there? If dating, what's going on? Um, And are they forgiving people, as maybe they should be? You know, and I come back to this again, that chap I'm discipling at the moment, and I spoke to him about his life, And I said, you know, what do you think is at the root of this desire to keep on heading back there? I don't know. Um, And he told me a bit about his background. His dad was in the military. His mum was in the military. His older brother was a Marine. And was he in the military? Have a guess. No. He was a geek. He was a bookworm. And I said, have you ever felt slightly rejected by your family? Well, not really. They love me a lot. But, you know, you're not part of the gang, are you? You are not in the military. I said, just forgive them. Your brother, your mother, and so on. And two months went by, and I said, how are you getting on? He said, it's brilliant. I've not masturbated or looked at porn for two months now. I said, okay. Is that a long time for you? And he said, it's the longest time ever in my life. You know, when we begin to do these things, then we begin to see people change. Speak often, but be honest. The reality is, is that the journey is long and it's painstaking, but pray always. And as parents, what can we do? Um, Once again, we've got to teach our children. We've got to speak to them about these things. If we don't, the enemy will. And even things like, once again, Modesty. I've seen, I don't know whether people have seen, but headlines in the newspapers about girls not being allowed to wear skirts anymore in schools because there are problems. There are issues. Do you know the number one uh, subsect of society for sex offenders? Do you know what it is? What profession it is? Any guesses? Teachers. It's teachers. 
Now maybe it's because that kind of person goes into that line of work. Maybe because they become tempted themselves. But, you know, it would be easier, wouldn't it, if we had a culture of love to each other. And for olders, older children, teens, dating. The reality is, is that if we've been steeped in pornography for our whole life, then it's going to affect the way we want to date. We want to get to from A to B a lot quicker. Romance is dying. But if we teach our children, then it won't. I just wanted to play a little clip um, of some guys. So I don't know if anybody's heard of the band Korn, but one of two of their members became Christians. They were steeped in addiction, um, and Jesus set them free. That's fantastic. But the thing is this, is that what then do they do? They are in a culture which is surrounded darkness, depravity, and so on. Either they could sit back and be affected by it still and lose the battle, or they can go into the battle. So yeah, do you want to play? here living like rock stars like you do we you know grew up watching videos of people other rock stars partying and and just everything they did from drinking to you know that was just part of the deal so as we were kids we wanted to be in a band me and head and we you know ended up looking up to these bands we're like this is what we got to do you know i don't know how much the world knows but it was non-stop from my eyes open to a bonk to the xanax throwing up and then trying to make it to as far as I can to not having a drink and then drinking. But it was all just fun and games to me. For two years, I did meth. And I was just like basically a junkie in the tour bus, you know, and, uh, and I, I took my drugs to New Zealand, Australia. I packed them in my suitcase. I took them to, to Europe. I ran out in Europe and had my dealer send me some over the mail in Europe. I was like risking everything. And after that two years, I was like, I got to get sober. And along with all this started becoming ripping relationships apart, violence, loneliness, to, you know, it was just getting bad. And, and he was in my life the whole time, and this guy's watched me rip people apart. Like, I was just violent. You know, I, I don't know why I never killed anybody, because was, I was a pretty violent guy. And it was getting pretty bad to where you, he ended up finally head left, when he found, you know, he found Jesus, he left. But what really changed me was, you know, I got into my house and I got my Bible out and I was still on the drugs and I was flipping through it and it seemed to be like talking to me, you know? And I was just like, how do I know, no, for this, for sure this is real. And all of a sudden, like, eternity seemed like it opened up all around me. And you gotta, you gotta understand, I was on meth for two years, so I, I felt nothing but just a gutter feeling in my soul. I was just horrible feeling. It was just so intense that I was just holding the Bible and I started shaking and I look up and 
The best way to describe it is that I felt like I was home in life for the first time. And I just looked up and I said, Father, like, Father, I'm home, you know? And, uh, and after that, like the next, next morning, I threw away all the drugs. I haven't touched them since. I stopped drinking. I, uh, I was basically addicted to the Holy Spirit's presence and just that feeling of eternity from that moment on. And I've just been going, going, going ever since. And I was, and I was still just like, just still partying. And then my dad got sick. His dad was a prison minister and he'd been praying for us and stuff like that, and especially his son. So his dad called me to congratulate me after I left corn and all that. He's like, man, I've been praying for you guys. It's so awesome. He's like, uh, he's like, man, I'm telling you, I've been praying for my son too. I just, I can't wait. If I ever get to heaven and he's not saved yet, I'm going straight to Jesus. About three months later, I hear that his dad got a deathly ill illness that nobody knew what it was. He died. His wife's like, hey, um, your dad just wanted you to, you know, pray, will you pray with me? And I'm like, yeah. I mean, it was, just cra- it was just chaos, you know? And I was like, yeah. So she prayed to ask me to accept Jesus. And I don't know what happened, but the whole family came back to my house. And my aunt was there, which is his sister, my dad's sister. And she's like, just sitting there with a kind of mourning, I guess. And I, I told her, I remember going, I think I'm saved. And then like a week went on and I, and I decided, I don't know, something happened, I just stopped drinking. And it's like seven days a week I drink. These guys would take off on Sunday. I go, why are you guys taking a day off? I drink seven days a week. And it just stopped and everything just stopped. And I, and I just went to bed with no drinking, no weed, no pills, no, and I was just, and then the next day came, next day came, and then she got me a Bible. And I'm like, I don't know, said it right there. I sat there for like a week and I was like, just opened it up, I was like, started reading it, and it just became truth. I was reading it, and I go, I'm gonna read this whole thing no matter what. <laughs> and I just read it, no matter what, and I was like, whoa. And this truth hit me, and it, every word was coming at me, and it was like, this is encouraging love. And I was like, whoa. And I just kept reading it, and just didn't stop. And I told myself, I'm gonna read this every single day for the rest of my life. I've never been the same since. And I, you know, since I asked Jesus into my heart and into my life, I've never been the same. So, so it's just crazy that his dad said, if I ever die and my son's not saved, I'm gonna go to Jesus and ask him where my son is. I've been praying for him. And, and that night that he died, he was like, am I saved? You know what I mean? It's like, it's just crazy how, it's crazy how real heaven is. Okay, you can watch the whole film, but, um, and as Brian had said, he became addicted to the presence of the Holy Spirit. Maybe not the way that you would phrase that, but the reality is, is that the church has an answer to these problems. Only the church, through Jesus. Sin will take you further than you ever wanted to go, keep you longer than you ever wanted to stay, and cost you more than you can ever pay. You know, the church needs to speak the truth in the public space. To say what the the Bible has to say about marriage, pornography. To say that they're wrong. We need to offer that counseling to Christian singles, married couples, men's groups. We need to do something.
Thank you very much.